We're going to continue our series, our short series about heaven, and I encourage you to take your Bible, turn over to Isaiah chapter 55, Isaiah chapter 55, for our scripture reading this morning, Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 through 11, so we're going through a series on being kingdom focused, and uh, as part of that, we've been studying about heaven the last several weeks, and uh, I've been trying to squeeze in these questions into the last two sermons, and they wouldn't fit. So they are becoming the sermon today, okay? (laughs) So Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 11, says, verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Well, as we finish this series, I think it's appropriate to answer some difficult questions about some unique situations about will certain people get into heaven? We're going to talk about babies that are aborted or were miscarried or were stillborn or die at a very young age, an infant or toddler. Will they get into heaven? What about those who are mentally challenged? What about those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ in their own language or have the scriptures given to them so they could understand, will they get to heaven? And lastly, we'll go into a little overtime because this will be longer. We'll talk about what happens to those who commit suicide who are believers in Christ. I get that question constantly from people, either unbelievers or believers. Will Christians who commit suicide, will they go to heaven? So as we think about that, um, in our scripture reading, we've been reminded that God is not like us at all, even though we are made in the image of God. I think we need to remind ourselves when we approach these questions, we don't come at it from a human perspective. We need to come at it from God's perspective. So the first thing we have to understand is he is sovereign and he does whatever he pleases. And I try to remind myself often that he is God and I am not, right? He is God and I am not. God is not a superhuman version of man. This is not what it means to be made in the image of God. We have the Bible. We have his general revelation around us. And while that's complete and inerrant and infallible and our final authority for truth, guess what? There's more beyond what we know, far more. God could have more attributes than we know about. There could be more members of the Trinity. If so, it wouldn't be called the Trinity, right? But he might have others. There's things we just do not know, but we have the word. We have enough to know who God is. And when God reveals things to us, he can see our beginning and the end of our lives all at the same time. And he knows what is the very, very best for each of our lives. So we need to think much bigger about God than we have in the past. George Washington Carver said, when I was young, I said to God, God, tell me the mystery of the universe. 
But God answered, that knowledge is for me alone. So I said, God, tell me the mystery of the peanut. And God said, well, George, that's more nearly your size. (laughs) And amen to that. One theologian said that the universe to God is like a peanut in God's pocket. It's beyond our comprehension of infinity and the vastness of God. We also need to be reminded that since God created reality and he created the earth and man and the universe, he gets to determine the rules and the terms of living. That's important. Again, we're not God and who are we to question how he works? As he lays out the terms, we need to follow them. Second, God chose to reveal himself to us. Isn't that amazing? We can go outside and we can see that he's the master designer, the architect, the perfect ecosystem that we could live here on planet Earth with enough water and oxygen and the right distance from the sun and all those things. God chose to reveal himself to us through nature, but also through his son, Jesus Christ, and through the word of God that we have. Another thing we need to remember is that we're born with the wrath of God on us because we are sinners by nature. And I want to be clear about this. We are not sinners after we are born and commit our first sin. We are sinners as we come out of the womb and into this world. We sin because we're already sinners. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. In the Greek, that's in the present tense. As long as a person is separated from God, the wrath of God is abiding on him as he goes through this life. So it follows that every human being that's ever lived apart from Christ deserves right from the start to be separated from God in hell for all eternity. But as a few months ago when Austin was preaching on Ephesians 2, he talked about, but God showed his rich mercy and grace to each one of us. As we sang in that last song, mercy is more. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting something we don't deserve, like a gift, abundant life, eternal life in the spiritual realm. God paid the penalty for sin. He didn't sidestep justice, but he paid for the price and the cost of it through his son, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross. Another important aspect to remember as we think about having a big idea of God is that he gives us a free will and free choice. That's a great blessing. God could have created all of us to just worship him like robots, but he chose rather that we would have the opportunity to make that decision for ourselves when we're convicted by the Holy Spirit, when we're given the word of God to choose to accept him and to follow him. What a privilege that is. And so may you and I remember who this God is that has saved us and that we serve. And it's important as we look at the backdrop of that to these questions. So as we look at these questions today, the first three, maybe the four questions, I could say can be up for debate. I'm going to share what the Bible says about these ideas and what some theologians have logically tried to conclude based on who our God is. Again, these are not definitive answers, but I believe these ideas give us a good reason to accept the premises of a logical and merciful and loving sovereign God. So let's look at unique situations about who is going to heaven. First of all, do babies go to heaven if they die young? Do babies go to heaven if they die young? This discussion includes those babies who have been aborted, babies whose mothers miscarried or carried babies to uh, full term and they were stillborn, 
and infants who die before they understand sin, God, and the gospel. Now I want to reiterate that each human being that comes out of the womb is born a sinner, and they have a sinful nature that causes them at birth and beyond to be separated from God. But we find some inferences in Scripture that God does not hold babies, infants, and toddlers accountable for their sin because they're developing, and as of yet, they're unable to recognize what sin is, to recognize what's right and wrong, and understand God fully and the gospel. I came across this passage of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 16. Look at the first phrase of that up on the screen. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. There's an inference there that there's a period of time before a child is mature enough to understand the difference between right and wrong. And uh, even though they have a conscience, it's something that will come upon them as they get older. King David has a child. He had a child, you know, as a result of uh, adultery with Bathsheba. And you remember the story. Nathan the prophet came and said, you are the man and that you need to repent. And David did repent as you read in Psalm 51. But Nathan also told him that his child was going to die. So what did David do? He fasted. He prayed. He prayed for a long time. And when the baby died, he rose up. He washed himself, cleansed himself, ate food. Why? Well, I think it has to do with the statement in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 23. He believed that if God did not spare his child here on earth, he would see that child again in paradise on the other side after he died. In 2 Samuel 12, 23, but now he is dead, David said. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Many theologians believe that granting saving grace to babies and young children on the basis of the sufficiency of Christ's atonement is consistent with God's love and mercy. We won't take the time, but in John chapter 9, it's an interesting passage. I encourage you to study it in detail, but it's where Jesus heals the man who's born blind. And after the physical healing, the man goes through the process of receiving his spiritual sight, of, of coming to faith in Christ. But notice at first, the man is ignorant. He knows Jesus' name, but not where to find him in John 9, 11 through 12. Later, he arrives at the truth that Jesus is a prophet in verse 17 of that chapter, that he's from God. And then in speaking to Jesus, the man admits his ignorance, but he says he has a need for a savior. Jesus asks him, do you believe in the son of man? And the man replies, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Finally, in chapter 9, having seen the light spiritually, he says, Lord, I believe, and he worships Jesus. Interesting, following that expression of faith from the man born blind, Jesus encounters the spiritually blind Pharisees in that same chapter. And Jesus said to them, for judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what? Are we blind too, the Pharisees said? And Jesus said, here's the key. If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. In other words, Jesus says, if you were truly ignorant or blind, you would have no guilt. It's because you are not ignorant and you willfully unbelieve that you stand guilty before God. So the principle Jesus lays down in John 9 is that God does not condemn people 
for things that they're unable to do or understand. Sin is measured by the capacity or ability of people and their opportunities of knowing the truth. If people have no ability to do the will of God, they can incur no blame. If they have proper ability and no disposition, God holds them to be guilty. So according to these principles, I think babies and young children who are unable to accept Christ or reject Christ are not held accountable for unbelief. So our application is this. We must trust in the balance of God's attributes and his infinite wisdom to determine what he does for babies who die a premature death. Balance, attributes, infinite wisdom. And I'll expand on that a little bit more as we get to the next point. We'll talk about the age of accountability, which enters into this discussion as well. We must trust in the balance of God's attributes and his infinite wisdom to determine what he does for babies who die a premature death. What we shared here will apply to these next two questions as well. Do mentally challenged people go to heaven when they die? That's a good, good discussion to think about. Um, When I was a youth pastor in Illinois, we took teenagers on two summer trips up to Union Grove, Wisconsin, not far from Oshkosh there. And uh, we had the opportunity to work at the shepherd's home. These were people 18 years of age and older who were mentally challenged. Some of them were actually able to hold down a job in the community, and some had the mental capacity of a three-year-old. It was all in that facility. And it was amazing to watch as they would learn scripture, as they would sing songs about the Savior, and even travel to churches as well. What do we do with those who are born with Down syndrome or others who are born with all kinds of mental challenges in their life? When they die, will they go to heaven? Is there such a teaching that the Bible gives an age of accountability? And if so, what is that age? Well, some theological traditions argue for a specific age of accountability for infants and children while others do not. Some theologians do assert that a child isn't responsible for the transmission of Adam's sin to the human race until they reach a certain age. So what is the age of accountability that I'm talking about? Well, here's a definition up on the screen for you. The age of accountability is the concept that those who die before reaching the age of accountability are automatically saved by God's grace and mercy. The age of accountability is a belief that God saves all those who die never having possessed the ability to make a decision for or against Christ. And so, as we'll talk about, there's many that set an age. Uh, Some will say it's as young as four or five, but I think it's up to every parent, every pastor, every leader that works with children to help them to come to that place. And when they sense that, opportunity to share the gospel when they understand right from wrong and general concepts of who God is in the gospel, those are the opportunities to share the gospel with them. Most Christian traditions teach that children enter the world fallen due to Adam's sin, but some argue children are not guilty before God until they knowingly disobey God's commands. If the child dies before reaching that age of accountability, he or she receives salvation based on Christ's finished work. And once the child knowingly sins, however, they become accountable for their actions and have reached that age of accountability. At that point, salvation comes through the conscience, a sense of right and wrong, an act of repentance and faith in Christ. 
Genesis 18.25 gives us a little bit of insight in what God may be thinking about these situations. Genesis 18.25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. The question is, what is just to do with those who have mental challenges to their life? So here's some things, some principles to think about under this point. First of all, we must live with the tension of two truths. And we have to live in this tension. We live in a lot of tensions. Grace and truth is one. You know, election and free will is another uh, tension that we have to face. Well, here we have to face two tension of two truths here. One is that we are all born into sin because of Adam. Two, we cannot use Adam as a scapegoat or excuse and not take responsibility for our sin. If we're honest, we would sin on our own even if Adam had not sinned. And we will all be held accountable as believers at the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. So we must live with the tension that, yes, we're born with sin, and yes, we're accountable. But also, God rightly, second of all, unjustly demands our obedience and devotion from each of those he has created. But those who have received more revelation from God are more accountable to him for what they know. So... Some parents have said, well, I'm just not going to share the gospel with my kids so that if they don't know that, then they're going to be covered, right? No, that's not, that's not true because they have, as we'll see later, God's revelation, general revelation leading to special revelation. So Luke 12, 48 says, but the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. But focus on the rest of this verse. Everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. The third thing we have to wrestle with in thinking about this whole thing is Christ alone is our salvation and our redeemer. We know that. We know that. Christ alone. And so how do these people who are unable to really comprehend the gospel, how does this all fit together? You and I were saved by grace through, or through, or by faith through grace in Christ alone, because of his substitutionary death on the cross. And the Old Testament saints, they were saved by realizing that they could not keep the law. And uh, they didn't have the full understanding of the gospel that we have, but they couldn't keep the law, and so they were told to make sacrifices to cover their sin and remove the guilt that they were experiencing. And Acts 4.12 says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. His name is Jesus Christ. Under normal circumstances, the next point there, subpoint: those who are saved are those who repent of their sins and trust in Christ. So a lot of pastors, and I served under a pastor who believed that 13 was the age of accountability. He wouldn't let anybody get baptized in that church until they were 13. And he took that from the Jewish custom that a child becomes an adult at the age of 13. However, the Bible does not give any direct support to the age of 13, always being the age of accountability. It likely varies from child to child. And as I said, a parent, pastor, Sunday school teachers come together and, and, and try to determine when a child is really ready to understand the gospel 
and it's up to them at that point to make a decision for Christ. Charles Spurgeon's opinion was that a child of five can as truly be saved and regenerated as an adult. So the age of accountability is the belief that God saves all those who die never having possessed the ability to understand how to make a decision for or against Christ. One verse that may speak to this issue is Romans 1.20. And we'll look at this in a, in a, a later point. In Romans 1.20, Paul said, For his invisible attributes, talking about God, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. It begins with us realizing, as I said earlier, that there is a master designer. There's someone out there bigger than us. And I believe every human being innately has this sense of eternity in their hearts, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. We have this sense that there's someone out there. What do we do with that sense? Do we seek after to find who the true God is? Well, according to this verse, mankind's guilt before God is based in part on the fact that people reject what they can clearly see of God's existence, of his eternality and his power. This leads to the question of children who have no faculty for clearly seeing or reasoning about God. Wouldn't their natural incapacity to observe and reason provide them with an excuse? Is it fair for someone who cannot comprehend sin to be separated from God for all of eternity? Those are the questions that we have to wrestle with as we think of these first two questions. And although it's possible that God applies Christ's payment for sin to those who cannot believe, the Bible does not specifically say that he does this. Therefore, this is a subject about which we should not be dogmatic about. God's applying Christ's death to those who cannot believe would seem consistent with his love and mercy. It's my position that God applies Christ's payment for sin to babies and those who are mentally handicapped since they're unable to understand their sinful state and their need for a savior. Of this we are certain, though God is loving, holy, merciful, just, and gracious. Whatever God does in this situation is always right, always good, and remember, he loves children even more than you and I do as well. So our application is this. We must trust in God's holy attributes and sovereignty. It's a very wordy application here. <clears throat> we must trust in God's holy attributes and sovereignty to determine what he does with those who are unable to comprehend or be exposed to the gospel in a way to make a rational decision for themselves. And we trust the compassion, the love, and the mercy of God on this. So what about those who've never had a chance to hear the gospel in their own language? Those who never had an opportunity to respond to Christ. And again, as I put these things out there, I am open to be challenged. I'm open to more source material. Um, but as I read what I've seen, these are the, the places where I land myself. The third one, though, is can those who never heard the gospel go to heaven when they die? The question many in our society ask, even Christians, how could a good and loving God condemn to hell someone who has never heard the name of Christ or had the chance to receive him? There are two predominant teachings on this in Christianity, and you've got those definitions there. Inclusivism versus exclusivism. 
And I'll try to explain this simply. Inclusivism teaches that salvation is only through Jesus Christ, but that there may be persons who are saved without knowing it. Jesus may save some who have never heard of him. And they point to Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, and they say that people can be saved by general revelation and their conscience apart from the special revelation of God's word and knowing who Jesus Christ is without the Holy Spirit, without the gospel. The teaching goes that recognizing there is a God, Romans 1, 19 through 20, and that they follow their moral conscience God has placed within them, that will be how they will be saved. Like the Gentiles, without the law, though ignorant of the law, follow what is right and as knowledge of what is wrong, choose what is right to do. That's the example that they point to in Romans chapter 2. Inclusivism is basically the argument for Old Testament saints coming to Christ. The idea is if a man is searching for God on his own, God will reveal himself through general revelation to draw him to himself. The Old Testament saints didn't know the name of the Messiah as of yet, but they obeyed by faith the revelation God gave to them, including the sacrificing of animals, as God stated, for the forgiveness of their sins. They received by faith God with the knowledge that they had. So the inclusivist believes that if they continue to respond to the light that they have been given, God will be merciful toward them. Millard Erickson said this, the basis of acceptance of the inclusivist view would be the work of Jesus Christ, even though the person involved is not conscious that this is how provision has made for his salvation. Salvation has always been appropriated by faith. Nothing has been changed in that respect. So as a side note, the issue I have with this view is it opens the door for universalism, opens the opportunity to to give reasons for more and more things, uh, exceptions to um, what the Bible teaches, I believe. So my opinion, the other teachings called exclusivism, this is more along the lines with uh, a stricter, narrow view within the scripture. Exclusivism teaches that redemption is possible through only faith in the gospel. This has been the predominant Christian view throughout church history and remains so among Bible-believing Christians today. This view hinges on the idea that man is incapable of searching for God on his own due to our sinful and depraved condition. Also, that salvation only occurs by proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. It begins with receiving, just like the inclusivists, the general revelation that God reveals himself through nature. Look to the screen. These are amazing verses in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge from God. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. And in the Hebrew, verse 4, it says their voice, the preaching of who God is, literally in the Hebrew, goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. When we go out and look at nature, it is God preaching to us, I'm here. I'm here. I made this. I'm the creator. I'm here. The exclusivist view is that God's revelation in nature is not enough to save, but point out there is a God and that men and women are sinners in his sight. Take your Bible, turn over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. 
We're going to look at Romans 1, Romans 10 very quickly to get Paul's perspective on this. Romans 1, look down at verse 18. Earlier we read a couple of these verses, but I want to put it in context. In verse 18, Romans 1, Paul said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Simply put, nature reveals there is a God. Man has to decide at that point whether to ignore or suppress the truth. And man is without excuse because instead of pursuing God in humility to get to know him in his way of salvation, man rejects God's general revelation and determines to worship the creature more than the creator. Verse 23, it says choosing to make, you know, statues of animals or whatever uh, to worship. And we need to be reminded that mankind left to himself is going to worship something. Anthropologists centuries ago went, missionaries to other parts of the world, they happened on people in uncharted territory, people that nobody knew existed, and they were worshiping something. Man left to himself will worship something. There's that innate desire to worship within all of us. Flip over to Romans 10 as we get very specific to what Paul says about this question. This would be the defining thing to focus on. Romans 10 verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, quoting from the book of Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. Verse 17 is key, for so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Notice the chain of logic in Paul's mind. It's straightforward. The only way to be saved, verse 13, is to call on the name of Jesus Christ. The only way to call on Christ's name is to believe the gospel, that you're a sinner, and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and your need for a Savior. The only way to believe the gospel is to hear the gospel, and the only way to hear the gospel is for someone to be sent to tell you the gospel. That's why, my friends... The Great Commission is so important because God doesn't have a plan B. The Great Commission is for men and women who know Jesus Christ to make disciples of others who will make disciples of others who will pass their faith on to the next generation of people, to the people around us. I'm so thankful for Wycliffe and other missions organizations working tirelessly for years uh, to 
to translate the Bible into every known language possible and to get a Bible and an opportunity to share the gospel to people to hear it in their own language. I'm thankful for the Timothy Initiative and the fast multiplication of the gospel and church plants and other organizations much like them. God makes a way for those who is elected, those who are open to the gospel to have the opportunity to hear it. You want an example from scripture, we'll just talk briefly about Acts chapter 10. I encourage you to mark that down and read it. God hears the devout prayers of a Gentile, Cornelius. Remember the Jews were not to be involved with the Gentiles, but a vision that Peter received and Cornelius received brought them supernaturally together. And John, in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius um, sees a vision and instructs him to send for a man called Peter in verse 5 of that chapter. And arriving the next day at Peter's house, Cornelius' men announced Cornelius, a centurion, a Gentile, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, Peter, to come to his house and to hear a message that you would share with him. Peter journeys with these men. Now think about that. Peter just getting a vision about, you know, being open to eat anything that's unclean. And he's understanding that it's now the gospel is going to the Gentiles. He journeys with the men to Cornelius' house where the centurion addresses his apostolic guest. Cornelius says, now we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've commanded by the Lord. And what's interesting is that Cornelius wasn't expecting any random message, but that the angel had told him a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household, in Acts eleven fourteen. In other words, it was a message without which Cornelius would have remained, despite all of his religious sincerity, eternally lost. Why do I point out this story? Well, first, because if a genuine unreached seeker were to exist, why wouldn't we expect God to reveal the gospel message to him or to her, whether through a missionary or a dream, just as he did to Cornelius? Second, and more importantly, because if ever there was a candidate for salvation through general revelation, surely it would have been Cornelius. He was a devout, God-fearing man who prayed, with the, all he had was the light that he had received, but as the chapter unfolds, it becomes clear that even extraordinary religious sincerity isn't enough. It was necessary for Peter to leave his house to travel 30 miles away to share the gospel with this man so he and his family could come to faith in Christ. Another example would be Acts chapter 8, where God sent Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch who was riding along in his chariot. Stopped on the side of the road after worshiping in Jerusalem, reading from Isaiah, didn't understand what the, the prophet was teaching. And Philip climbs up into the chariot and shares about Christ, Isaiah 51, and leads him to Christ. And of course, the Ethiopian eunuch is baptized. We could go on and on. Think of Muslims right now in our time period are having dreams about Christ. And they find Christian people and they want interpretation of this dream. And they're coming to faith in Christ. Do you realize the fastest growing churches in the world are in Iran right now? The people are turning away from the Muslim faith and they're turning to Christ because of dreams. Many of you may have read the book Peace Child by Don Richardson. And it's an interesting book. Mike's read it. And uh, there was a group of people and the leader of that people, the tribesman, the leader, he had a vision 
that there was going to be a man come to their community. He was going to be wearing a black suit and he was going to have a black book and he was to listen to what that man said. And 20 years later, Don Richardson shows up in a black suit with a black Bible and preaches the gospel and leads all those folks to Christ. God works in supernatural ways. We can't put him in a box. In the end, the question for the exclusivist is this. Will God condemn the innocent tribesmen who have never heard the name of Christ? No, because there are no innocent tribesmen. That sounds like a harsh answer. Is exclusivism unfair? Well, it's consistent with what the Bible teaches that only through Christ and his finished work on the cross and trusting in it alone can one come to faith in Christ. The hard part for us is that we have to trust the living, merciful, loving, and just God to do what is right in his eyes. This, this, this affects our vision of missions, for example, as a believer and as a church. And if you follow this view, then there's an overwhelming sense of urgency to share the gospel to every person we possibly can around us and through our missionaries around the world. And that's why so many uh, missions groups are partnering together to speed up the process, to get the gospel, to get the Bible written in every known language so that all will have the ability to hear. Charles Spurgeon once advised us, visit many books, but live in the Bible. We have to live in the Bible. We have to live with what we know God has told us and trust him for the rest. The most important thing we can do when faced with an emotionally charged topic like this is to open the word of God, pray for humility and understanding, and then embrace what it says. So here's our application. Are you thankful for the privilege to share the gospel and for our missionaries who are faithful to the call out, of, out on the field sharing Christ? Are you thankful for the privilege to share it and thankful for our missionaries who are faithfully out there in the far reaches of the world sharing the gospel of Christ? Well, we're going to go into overtime here and share one last question. So hope you can keep your attention span on. But let's wrestle with one last question. And we have to be brief with this one. Do those who commit suicide as believers go to hell? And that's a very important question. We're going to even see what the Catholic Church says about that as well. Many Christians are confused about this. We know where a non-believer goes when he or she commits suicide. And sadly, that's separation from God and hell for all of eternity. But can someone who commits suicide who is a believer lose their salvation? That's really what the issue we're talking about. The scripture many point to is found in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now think about it. We see some suicides in the Bible when Abimelech was mortally wounded by a woman who dropped a millstone on his head he cried to his armor bearer to kill him so his death would not be credited to a woman. The mortally wounded Saul fell upon his own sword lest the Philistines would abuse him and torture him before he died. We think about Saul's armor bearer then took his own life as well. Ahithophel hung himself after his advice was no longer followed by King David's son Absalom in 2 Samuel chapter 17. Zimri set himself on fire after his rebellion failed in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Kings 16. It's debated whether Jonah attempted suicide. 
Samson, some would say, committed suicide, but many believe that it was just a, a brave military conquest to pull down the columns and to kill all of those Philistines. Judas is the only New Testament reference to someone committing suicide. Paul in Acts 16 stopped the Philippian jailer from committing suicide when the earthquake came and all the doors opened and the chains fell off and he thought the prisoners had left and of course he would have lost his life if anyone had been set free due to that and Paul saved him from that. So God's word makes clear the sanctity of life. You shall not murder, Exodus 20, 13. Deuteronomy 30, 19, this day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. Job 1.21, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Only God is the one who decides when the end of our life should be. In 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you've received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Committing suicide is not honoring God with your body. In Ephesians 5.29, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. So what does the Catholic Church say about suicide? Well, these are taken directly from their, their writings. Everyone is responsible for his life before God who has given it to him. It is God who remains the sovereign master of life. The Catholic Church says we are obliged to accept life gratefully and preserve it for his honor and the salvation of our souls. We are stewards, not owners of the life God has entrusted to us. It is not ours to dispose of. In the Catholic Church, they teach mortal versus venial sins. Mortal sins separate us from God's grace Venial sins, while serious, do not separate us from God's grace. So the following principles of Catholic theology seem clear. We cannot be sure of the spiritual state of the person who commits suicide. This person may be suffering from grave psychological disturbances which can diminish the responsibility of the one committing suicide. Mortal sin requires full knowledge and complete consent and can be diminished by unintentional ignorance. Thus, the church should not despair of the eternal salvation of persons who have taken their own lives. However, the church says, if the person was fully aware of his or her actions without suffering grave psychological disturbances, this person committed murder, an act that is gravely sinful. A person who commits a mortal sin and demonstrates persistence in it until the end goes to hell. So since a person who commits suicide cannot repent of sin, it's logical to conclude that this person cannot be saved from hell. However, nowhere in the Catholic Catechism does it teach that it's clearly developed or formulated. It's not defined clearly. So since we believe as Christians in the eternal security for the believer, we don't believe that a person who's truly born again will go to hell for committing suicide. It is a sin. It's a very selfish act. It goes contrary to God's will and the hope that is always found, and it goes against the hope that's always found in the daily application of the gospel to our lives. I do not believe it's the unpardonable sin, as some people will say, 
that suicide is. The unpardonable sin, according to Matthew 12, 31, is resisting the Holy Spirit. Is someone who chooses not to believe in Jesus Christ and chooses to be separated from him for all of eternity. So here's the application. There's more we could say about that. If you want more resources, you know, come and see me. But the application today is that we need to do everything for the person who is depressed and considering suicide to see the lasting hope that is found in Christ alone. That's important. That there are a lot of people, the suicide rate is climbing dramatically, especially among teenagers and young adults. There's a sense of hopelessness through this pandemic and other things that are going on in our world. And we need to do our part to bring them the living hope of Jesus Christ and to get them the help that they need so that they do not do this selfish act that affects so many people that are left behind. Our key thought is this, as we close, we must trust God. We must trust in God's goodness, wisdom, and sovereignty for questions we don't have the complete answers to. I've given you a lot to chew on, to think about. I encourage you to do your own research as well. Bring it in and show me where I'm wrong. I'm not trying to say I've got all the answers. I don't. But what I've tried to give you is some things to, to think about and wrestle because people will ask you these questions. People do ask you these questions already. And what does the Bible say about these things? Some questions to ponder just before we pray. Are these answers helpful in sharing with a person who's seeking God but wants answers to some of these questions? If not, I encourage you to dig deeper. Second of all, how can you personally dig deeper into God's word to understand the heart of God and his principles to receive more clarity in the issues of life that are unclear to us? And how can I ultimately trust the heart of God and his wisdom when I don't have all the answers to my questions. As I often say, there's a lot of things that come across my desk that are above my pay grade, and I trust him, who's the one who knows far more than I do, uh, to figure it out. And when we get to heaven, he will answer these questions definitively. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you that we could take time to wrestle with some of these difficult issues that we face. Some of us in this room may have been involved in an abortion. And they need to hear that reaffirmation that that little one is in heaven today. There are people within the sound of my voice that have had stillborn babies, miscarriages, young toddlers who died of SIDS or some rare disease all of a sudden. It was tragic in their family. But Lord, we just pray that this gives affirmation, that gives hope, that gives encouragement, that we believe they're with you. For those that have had handicapped people in their families, mentally challenged, who go through year after year of serving and caring for that loved one, we pray for them. Help them to know that that, that one is made in the image of God, and as a child of God. Give them hope. Give them encouragement. And Lord, may we use these responses when we come across people who are facing these things in their own lives, that we can give them the hope of the gospel in Jesus Christ. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.